This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 26, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The Cadillac tax, a tax on generous health plans embedded in Obamacare, is likely to go away. Why? Well, as David Hyman, co-author of the Cato book Overcharged, will tell you, the rule in Washington is dessert first, spinach later. We spoke last week. So I'm going to describe the tax in a minute, but let me just start by telling you why people call it the Cadillac tax which is that uh, for a long time, health economists have sort of debated whether people should be able to choose differing levels of generosity in their health plans. Um, and the natural instinct, I guess, was to use car types uh, as an indication of different levels. So you know, you could have a Chevy policy uh, that covered a lot of stuff but didn't cover everything, and then a Cadillac policy, which covered all the bells and whistles. And then when it came time to figure out a way to fund Obamacare and also address an underlying problem in the way in which health insurance is treated by the tax system, health economists, I think, just grabbed onto the idea of a Cadillac tax, which the way it was structured was if the cost of your coverage exceeded a particular threshold and the amount of that threshold was tied to whether it was a single individual or a family policy, uh, then your employer uh, would owe a excise tax of 40% of the excess of the cost of the policy over that threshold. So those thresholds were about $10,000 for an individual policy and about $30,000 for a family policy. And that was included in the original Obamacare legislation, which passed in 2010. The tax was supposed to take effect in 2018. It's so far, it's been postponed twice. And now a bill has passed the House of Representatives to kill it entirely rather than just keep rolling it over. So uh, I, what was the impulse that uh, drove lawmakers to accept the idea that more generous uh, health insurance ought to be uh, taxed punitively? Well, I think there were a couple of different motivations. One was that if you're going to expand coverage dramatically, which is what uh, Obamacare did mostly through Medicaid expansion, but also through significant subsidies for policies obtained through the exchanges, you needed to come up with some money to do that. And taxing people, other people's health insurance looked, I guess, like a good way to do that to make the numbers work. You didn't have to look for offsets outside the uh, health insurance package. It was just part of the whole thing. And because they backloaded the effective date, right? the legislation gets enacted in 2010, it takes effect in 2014, but the first year taxes aren't due until 2018, you can promise that you're going to raise revenue um, and use that in the budgetary negotiations, but you don't actually have to collect the money and do it immediately, right? One of the rules in Washington is dessert first, spinach later. And I think the uh, design of the Cadillac tax is completely consistent with that. So that's one reason. Uh, a second reason is that the, there is a problem with the way in which we treat employment-based health insurance, which is it's excluded from income. Well, what does that mean? It means if your employer provides you a policy and makes a contribution towards it of often thousands and thousands of dollars, you don't pay taxes on that. And that has both horizontal and vertical inequity consequences. The horizontal inequity is somebody else who 
doesn't get insurance through their place of employment, has to pay for it with after-tax dollars while you're buying it with pre-tax dollars. And that predictably enough causes people to demand more insurance and more extensive insurance than they would. The vertical inequity issue is because we have a progressive tax system, people who make more money pay higher taxes on each marginal dollar of income. And so the consequence of an exclusion of employment-based insurance from tax treatment means that the subsidy that people get is higher if they make more money. And so I guess the, the, to circle back though, the, the sort of back-ended three-cushion strategy of this uh, Cadillac tax was to try and over time eliminate the subsidy for health insurance obtained through the place of employment because over time, most people's policies would be above the trigger that was set in the legislation. You mentioned uh, dessert first, spinach later, a phrase that I haven't heard, but it uh, immediately is obvious what it means. Uh, the same was probably true with respect to Medicare cuts that were future Medicare cuts that were built into the Obamacare legislation. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the dessert, once again, was let's expand coverage for people who don't currently have it, and then we can walk around claiming a huge victory. But the spinach later was we have to come up with a way of funding this, and the proposed sizable cuts, uh, mostly to Medicare Advantage, were intended to offset the increased spending. Uh, but you know, it turns out it's much easier to promise spending cuts in healthcare than to actually deliver them. The same goes for increasing taxes. It's easy to promise that you'll increase taxes at some point in the future. And you can generalize the insight, right? Social Security and Medicare in general are based on, you know, enjoy the dessert now and someone else in some future generation will have to eat the spinach of coming up with the money to pay for all of the things that you promised. It seems like uh, the Cadillac tax may well have been an attempt to replicate what a lot of economists have suggested for a long time, which is eliminate the tax benefit for uh, getting your health insurance through an employer. Is um, that not is that was that not the intent? I think that was certainly the intent of the health economists, um, although it's a somewhat you know, clunky way of doing that. Over time, it would have done indirectly what people were simply not willing to do in an up and down vote. But it turns out they're not willing to do it indirectly either. Um, and you may remember uh, Professor Jonathan Gruber of MIT, who became famous for some candid remarks about uh, the intelligence or lack thereof of the American voter. Um, he also made somewhat similar comments about you know the a way in which the Cadillac tax was structured. He said, look, we were trying to fix a problem that every health wonk understood and thought we ought to fix. Uh, but the way we did it was we misrepresented uh, what it was we were doing, right? We, we called it a Cadillac tax on uh, employers and insurers rather than a what it was, which was a tax on the health insurance policies of individuals. And it's also noteworthy that you know President Obama, when he was running for office in 2008, promised that he would not do what Obamacare ends up supposedly doing, which is imposing a tax on people's health insurance as a way of unraveling the subsidy. Um, you know, he ran a, a famous commercial that you may have seen, a ball of yarn unraveling, 
to indicate what would happen if uh, we adopted Senator McCain's much more direct proposal to take on the subsidy. So he does it indirectly and uh, with a uh, you know a fairly deceptive description in order to get it passed. But it turns out when there's an up or down vote on the provision in isolation, there's bipartisan support for getting rid of it. Right? It passed the House of Representatives. I think it was uh, 400 and some votes, 419 votes in favor of eliminating the Cadillac tax. Bipartisan, obviously, and only six health economists apparently in the House of Representatives. And right now, the the legislation in the Senate is got about 40 to some co-sponsors, again, bipartisan. So uh, to make changes here uh, to how healthcare is bought and uh, received in the United States, what are the, what are the few big fixes that uh, the United States ought to undertake to get us to a more rational system? Well, it turns out I've actually written a book about that subject, which is published by the Cato Institute uh, with, my tell. Co- tell. with my co-author, Charlie Silver. It's called Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. If you go to overchargeforhealthcare.com, you can download a couple of chapters for free. Uh, I don't think I get any money at all uh, as a result of sales. So my uh, interest is I'll look only into that. In advancing the ideas rather than because I'm financially benefiting. Uh, but I think you know the book talks about a variety of strategies that we think are going to be more effective than the things that we've been trying to do in the past. And the things that we've been trying to do in the past is make big promises, but then not actually deliver them. Uh, when the bill comes due. Instead, we just pay the bill and promise to do better next time. And that's why Medicare looks the way that it does. It's why Medicaid looks the way that it does. There are lots of people for whom a dollar of healthcare spending is a dollar of income for them. And they're very reluctant to see the flow of money slowed, let alone eliminated entirely. And a big part of the problems with our healthcare system is that everyone perceives they're spending somebody else's money. And so we end up using insurance in the wrong way. Rather than using it to deal with catastrophes, we use it for everyday things. The result of that is the healthcare system is much more responsive to the needs and interests of the people who are footing the bill, uh, the employers and insurers, rather than individual ordinary Americans who, if they were spending their own money, would behave very differently, and so would the healthcare system. We do talk in the book about the importance of subsidizing people. Um, but you want to structure those subsidies not in the way we do for Medicare and Medicaid, which is if you need healthcare, we'll pay for it, but we're not interested in your other problems. Instead, we think we ought to structure it more like Social Security, the earned income tax credit, um, and the child care tax credit, which is we're not going to tell you how to spend your money. We're just going to give you money and let you spend it yourself. And we think you should couple that with a catastrophic uh, insurance plan that takes people who are at risk of being completely wiped out. Bernie Sanders uh, has, uh, you know, long has been a longstanding supporter of what he calls Medicare for all, um, and he recently made some changes to that plan uh, in response to concerns from organized labor. And their their concerns were essentially, "Hey, look, we're offering a lot better coverage uh, than some other." Uh, than other private plans, and Bernie Sanders has altered his plan to uh, give organized labor more negotiating power. So, what is that? That's in your view, that's going in the wrong direction. Well, 
uh, first of all, uh, calling something Medicare for all is mostly an exercise in labeling um, or branding. It doesn't tell you anything meaningful about the nature of the underlying policy. It turns out Senator Sanders' proposal doesn't actually bear that much resemblance to the existing Medicare program. It would cover lots more things um, and lots more people. And you know, the, I think the fiscal consequences, the people that have looked at this in some detail all say, you're going to have to come up with a lot more money or you're going to have to slash uh, payouts to existing healthcare providers who are going to be unenthusiastic about that. I think it's also noteworthy that you know, multiple states have uh, taken a run at, you, know, you can call it single payer or Medicare for all. Um, and these are all, you know, deep blue states. It's not that the Republicans are uh, potent political forces within those states. And each of those states that have looked at it have gagged when they've gotten the price tag. I think the other dynamic that it's important to recognize is our existing system is a result of our inability to say no collectively uh, to individual patients and to ver a whole variety of healthcare providers, right? Uh, we haven't been very good at uh, bending the cost curve, if you will. And so why is it that you think with that dismal record in the past, turning more things over to the government would make it work better? David Hyman is co-author of the Cato Institute book, Overcharged. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us and suggest show topics on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>